November 17, 1998, St. Louis, Missouri. The subtly illuminated room is filled by a circle of 18 utilitarian chairs. A large sheet of butcher paper spans the wall behind. At the very top, a five-inch high hand-lettered headline shouts out, Session 1, Getting to Know Ourselves. Below it, a series of questions. What is art? What is community? What is community development? What is the history and ecology of arts-based community development? And where do I fit in this landscape? A young woman carrying a backpack approaches the circle tentatively. She scans the wall briefly and takes a seat. Over the next 10 minutes, she's joined by other women and men until the stage is filled with the stuttering chatter that often accompanies the awkward dance of new acquaintances. A few minutes later, a lull in the murmuring chorus is filled by the piercing sound of a bell. The voices in the circle fade as the cyclic ringing descends on the group like a sonic curtain. After a few seconds, a woman sitting in the chair furthest from the room's entrance breaks the silence. Welcome everybody to the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission and the Community Arts Training Institute, better known as CAT. She leans forward and carefully places a pair of Tibetan bells onto the floor next to her chair. She smiles and says, I can't tell you what an honor it is to be sharing this circle with you this afternoon. In this episode of Change the Story, Change the World, we'll explore how a small arts training program called CAT helped build a powerful network of creative change agents and establish St. Louis, Missouri as an innovative leader in the burgeoning community arts field. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. I'm Bill Cleveland. The long and circuitous journey that led to the ringing of bells and opening of CAT began with a phone call some four years earlier. Diane Wiley, then with the Arts Extension Service of the University of Massachusetts, or AES, wanted to talk about creating a community arts training course for their summer institute for arts administrators. We both agreed that the time had come for this. Spurred by the availability of U.S. Department of Labor, or CETA, arts job funding in the late 1970s, the number of artists becoming involved in what they were calling arts-based community development had been growing year after year. By 1994, community arts programming was showing up all over the country, sometimes with amazing results. Unfortunately, this proliferation was also exposing some significant problems throughout the nascent field, namely that many of the artists and arts organizations involved were unprepared for the extraordinary complexity of the work. The result of our collaboration was a three-day intensive. The curriculum for this UMass Institute was conceived and presented by Diane, community arts veterans Bob Leonard and Alice Lovelace, and myself in the summer of 1995. The hands-on, arts-infused program emphasized the history and dynamics of social change, the development of equitable community partnerships, and deep reflection about the high level of responsibility that came with the work. In the fall of 1997, Ann Halbrick, a participant in our second summer institute at UMass, contacted me to talk about creating a similar program for the St. Louis Regional Arts Commission, or RAC, where she worked. 
For some time, Rack had been funding community arts projects. The ups and downs of that experience convinced Anne that it was time to start professionalizing the field in St. Louis. To really serve the region, we agreed that Rack's Community Arts Training Program, or CAT, would need to have an annual presence. We also felt that it should be cross-sector, which meant involving both artists and professionals from other arenas like human service, healthcare, and public safety as participants. The resulting five-month intensive had a cross-sector faculty and a curriculum designed with and for the local community. Now in its 23rd year, CAT has produced a network of over 350 human service, healthcare, and community development collaborators who are using the arts to help build healthy communities throughout the St. Louis area and help establish St. Louis as a national community arts and creative placemaking hotspot. A few months ago, I had the privilege of speaking with three women who've been deeply involved in CAT as both participants and faculty over the years. Con Christensen, who was a member of CAT's second class, has established both a local studio and a global constituency as a community artist and trainer. Pesha Anderson, a 2014 CAT Fellow and continuing faculty member, is an award-winning poet who has applied her skills as a writer and organizer in service to community programs all over the St. Louis region. Roseanne Weiss, who coordinated CAT from 2004 to 2018, recently joined with Khan and Pesha to take a CAT-inspired workshop sponsored by Americans for the Arts to communities all across the country that is, until the pandemic effectively shuttered the world. In this episode, the first of two devoted to this trio we are calling the Diva Cats, Pesha Khan and Roseanne share stories about how they became so deeply involved in the community arts movement in one of its epicenters. Part one, where the heck are we? Let me begin by just asking, um, checking in with, with each one of you as we go around. You know, obviously, with the world that we live in currently, how are you doing? Patient, why don't we start with you? How how are you doing? I am well. When the new world first gave birth to itself in the middle of March, which is a benchmark for a lot of people who work in the so-called gig economy, you know, it was weird there was a, a feeling of this oddness in the air. But I think I've, I've adjusted, I've come to rest that hopefully never go back to the way that things were. Being so <laughs> overly taxed in every aspect of our lives, physically, mentally, emotionally, creatively, always in pursuit of the do, you know. I'm really grateful for the time of sequester so we could practice rest also grateful for that time because now when I feel myself falling back into that pursuit of the do, that's what feels odd, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm feeling grateful for the shift and for living in just a new way of being that we actually had the time to sit still and imagine. Thank you. Con, how's your journeys? Everything that I was doing, including teaching at the universities, turned on a dime. And the stress of 
performance was juxtaposed by the sense that I'd really been given a gift and I have not been able to make art with other people except for one group. And that group of HIV positive men were locked down in their residence by a very wise program director. And because of that, I was able to um, spend some time each week creating a magic carpet and imagining not only what happens after homelessness, but what happens after you survived a pandemic. It was a gift for the most part. Uh, And I learned a lot from the parts that were not easy. So Roseanne. Yeah, this has really been a moment of thoughtfulness. I find this juxtaposition of intersecting upheavals in and how we um, must relate to each other right now in spaces like this and upheavals in the streets because of the things that have happened and the things that have been revealed. Those things also make an internal upheaval, right? So I don't feel very peaceful right now. Um, I feel very much like there is a disturbance and I'm not sure what's going to happen. I tend to be an optimistic person, so I believe that we are going to figure this out. But I think it's taking the world a long time to understand the moment that we're at because there's no going back. And first you have to understand where you are to understand where you're going And I think we're all still trying to understand where we are. So let me share with you where I'm at. I spent a lot of time talking to myself. I I walk five miles every morning. And where I walk, there's other people. It's a safe place to be because it's in a park. And there are people there doing what people are doing in order to survive this. They are singing into the sky by themselves. They're drawing things on the sidewalk, messages to people. They are dancing. And then I'm, I'm there talking to myself. So every day, it's COVID chronicles. It makes complete and absolute sense that our struggle with our racial history is manifesting right now. And the reason I say that is, is that this is a stress test for each individual for families, for everything in a society. And I believe that at moments like this, the cracks that are most vulnerable, that are ready to go, that have been there for the longest, that have the deepest pain attached to them, are the ones that are closest to the surface and ready to pop. Part two, the road to cat. So let me segue into the first story I'd like you to tell. And that's your personal story. Um, So let me begin with the first question. And Patia, we'll start with you. What is your work in the world? And how did you come to it? My work in the world is to see, observe, use, inspire color and imagination and contemplation as a way of living out our purposes for being here on this planet. When your body cannot hold your spirit's weight, when your frame is strained beyond what it was made to take, 
When your very fate is at stake, when you want to separate yourself from the illusion, vacate to a place of your choice. And I do that in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's just sitting on my porch, shooting the breeze with my neighbors. Other times it is working in schools and rec centers and with different organizations as a teaching artist, teaching poetry, spoken word, history, language, visual art. Uh, sometimes it is sitting on panels and boards and talking about civic duty and arts-based community development. And sometimes it is being in neighborhood and community meetings, yelling or telling jokes or rallying against the system or uh, complimenting someone on the food that they brought. <laughs> The center, the intersection of all of that is community. How do we gather? What do we do when we gather? How do we make sure that everyone knows that they're welcome? How do we make it so that we can continue to do so for a purpose that benefits all of us and encourages the best parts of our humanity? So what took you to this place? How did you become the patient force of nature that you are? I feel like the work either came to me or it was always there. In considering this question, I had to go like way, 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 way back. I was born in the late 70s, grew up in Springfield, Illinois. You know, our family had some challenges. And so I spent a lot of my three to 18 year old self in the foster care system. I actually aged out when I was 18. And our, our situation was really unusual because my foster mother and my birth mother had a really wild and crazy and weird and loving relationship. So my mom would just come by the house, you know, sometimes we would just meet like we were family. So we were afforded an opportunity to still, you know, have this relationship with my mother. I had these two mothers who were just awesome in their own way. My birth mother was a songwriter, you know, and I didn't really acknowledge that until I felt like it was okay to give myself permission to say that I was an artist too. And she loved to write letters. If my, if you made my mother angry, she would write you a 10 page letter and put it in the mail, right? If she got bad customer service, she would write a letter. So I have these memories of like my mom, like expressing her art through writing these songs and writing these letters. We got free cable a lot, you know, because <laughs> she was writing these letters. But then my foster mother was um, a super duper church person. She was 60 years older than me, so we were always going at it. But she did these really amazing things. She was a nurse. And so she would go off to all these disasters, you know, these floods and things, and volunteer with the Red Cross. And she ministered to people who were in jail every Saturday. And over the course of her life, had taken in like 40 or 50 foster children. And when she found out that I was into poetry, she literally made me like every Sunday get up and say these poems, right? So I had this mother who was an artist, and then I had this mother who did all this work in community. I never even considered how that was part of the makings of me until a couple of years ago. And so I feel like the work kind of came to me in the same way that I used to have to make my bed and wash dishes every single day, and I hated it. Now I get up and I make my bed right away. And I get done eating, I do the dishes right away. 
So there are always these women, but these two, you know, my mother and my foster mother showed me very, very early on what it means to be an artist and what it means to work in community. And I feel like I'm kind of the product of that. Wow. What a beautiful story. Everybody's story is so unique. <laughs> so unique. Khan, what's your unique story? How do you define what you do and how did you come to it? So... I, I grew up in a pretty insulated, giant Catholic Irish family in Nebraska. And I don't remember being unhappy. I don't remember be needing for much in spite of the fact that one time I saw my dad's paycheck and we had, there were, I had five sisters and two brothers and his paycheck was, I don't know, $600 for the month. And uh, he was an alcoholic. All his brothers and sisters were alcoholics, but somehow we managed to live in this neighborhood with 200 other children and all went to the same school and and all through school and in college i did a lot of creative things calligraphy dance drama just working with other people thinking together moving together engaging a creative process was was what always made me happy and I met the father of my children when I was in college the first time and married him, moved across the country several times. I in graduate school, but did not ever finish because I spent six semesters in the ceramics department uh, studying with Les Miley, who taught me many things about life. And I decided I, I just couldn't do that anymore. I just needed to, you know, figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And this was at the age of 38. And I remember standing in my garage and I said to myself, okay, I, ha I have to pick, I have to pick the music, the dance, the, the theater, the whatever, whatever. And a voice said, creativity is creativity. You've been given all the tools. And I, I, I heard the voice. I don't know from whence it came, um, but I can clearly still hear it. And I left that marriage and I left that small town and I left one child behind because she was missing high school. And I came to St. Louis and uh, after about six months got a job as a GED teacher. And oh, by the way, since you're an artist, could you uh, do art in the shelter five hours a week? I'm like, sure. The shelter Khan is referring to is a St. Louis facility for unhoused men where she began to teach painting and drawing. She also collaborated with a photographer who gave the men cameras so they could photograph and share what she was calling a day in my life. So she got, she gathered funding and came to me and said, I got everything. All you need to do is help me distribute cameras and establish relationships with people. So that particular experience, familiarity and the intuition and comfort level with process has has followed me into working now for um, since 1990 in thinking together the moving together an intuitive process and a way of convincing people that they are creative that creativity is not something to be afraid of and it doesn't matter what other, other people told you when you were 12 years old today we're going to do it differently and by the way we're all going to succeed and fail together so my purpose i think now for having done it for as long as i have is to, to take what i've learned in the process making work with other people creating things that are visible to to the community, building
building a community around the studio that I have in the Cherokee Arts District here in St. Louis, a laboratory. I have a place around me that allows me to practice the things I've done and see what works and then be able to tell other people what I know about what works and avail them of those resources if possible. Works for what? For creating community wherever you are whether it's on a Saturday morning in the park, whether it's a formal workshop, whether it's an ongoing arts group that meets once a week, whether it's people who come to me and say, what do you do and why do you do it? So, Roseanne, what do you do? How'd you you come to it? (laughs) I find that I'm a conduit, or perhaps a bridge would be another way to talk about it. Um, And maybe that's what training is, connecting people, putting people together, finding ways to put things in front of people um, that might be useful to them. You know, to me, that's who I am. The one thing I think we all, all of us talk about is that, you know, this is not a job. When you are working with artists and with community, it is incredibly personal. You bring yourself there, working with artists in a way that is full of activism and full of community is a privilege. With the two other people that we're speaking with, I've been doing workshops around the country and we wrote a guidebook and we did some webinars talking about this notion of art and community and what that means and what artists, what their agency is in order to do things. So so all of that is mixed up in who I am. I was brought up by a family, it was very middle, middle class Catholic. They believed in the notion of love and charity. And they very much taught us that the civil rights movement was important. And, and you, you know, I was in high school in the 60s. And I was precocious and obnoxious and read voraciously and would go to my mother and say, I need a note to get out of school today because there's a a protest against the Vietnam War downtown. And she'd write me the letter. And I'd go to the nuns and say, you know, I'm going downtown. And um, they just say, be careful, honey. Um, I will also say the other influence for me, and this may sound odd, but my parents had two children. They adopted three children. And I'm one of those adopted. And um, my father was on one hand, an incredibly loving man, but on the other hand, a really angry man. And I imagined that I didn't really belong to this family. And I think that that time period was incredibly important to me to understand that I could create my own world. God bless my mother. She would indulge me with costumes and all kinds of stuff. So being around, having that imagination was incredible to me. The other thing that was incredibly important to me was independence when you're, we were 11 years old and go go downtown or go to Forest Park to the museum. And the St. Louis Art Museum became my solace. It was the place I also escaped to. I could tell you where every painting was and in which gallery, because that's where I went. As I got older, my activism didn't go away. The people who were most important to me were women and the feminist movement, because I was, after all, brought up by nuns who were the most independent women I knew. When the AIDS crisis happened, a cousin of mine who was about my same age died right away without us quite knowing why he died. And so I went to my gay friends and said, what's going on, you know? And immediately was pulled into 
this activism because what we understood was our government didn't care if these folks died. I was a founder of something called the AIDS Foundation. We organized the huge walk. We raised money. We did all kinds of things before it was okay to do those things. At the same time, I was trying to figure out how to work within um, the arts, and I was hired by some arts gal- art galleries to run their galleries. Then I went to work for the Contemporary Art Museum. My friend was the director, and I had two jobs at there, marketing and education programming. She and the curators at that time supported me in my philosophy that the job of museums is to blow open their doors. They were community centers. So we did these amazing programs, spoken word uh, programs, Quincy Troop, Jazz Erotica, and we had programs for teenagers at a time in St. Louis when there were not a lot of programs for teenagers. New Art in the Neighborhood was a program for teenagers who didn't have any other opportunities. That program is still going. So that led me to the Regional Arts Commission and the Community Arts Training Institute because the teachers that I would hire to work with my students, my teenagers, the ones that went through the CAT Institute were the ones who got it. It's still one of the pinnacles what I've been able to do. Part three, what's a CAT? All of you together and independently have been involved in training, professional development, in support of artists and their partners from other sectors across the community in community arts. So I'm going to start by asking Peshu, when you're sitting at a Thanksgiving table or whatever and someone says, what is this work? Just share with me the elevator talk. How do you translate what you do for the uninitiated? So I often liken it to, and I've actually taken this on as part of my moniker, I guess, to caregiving. When people think about caregivers, they think about someone who, you know, does a lot of what would be called really hard and grunt work, right? But caregivers are also advocates. They're also counselors. (laughs) They're also protectors. Caregiving sometimes looks like, you know, picking up trash (laughs) on a street you may or may not live on, or month after month going to community meetings that you may not feel like you want to go to, but you understand that this is where decisions are made that affects the whole of, of the community. And, you know, and just saying art is probably the easiest way that I can describe that I do these things, right? Art is the medium, and the medium is the message says Marshall McLuhan. So yeah, you know, depending on who it is, I may just say simply, you know, I make art in the community. I'm a community caregiver. Whatever is required, that's what I'll go do. I'll go clean up the I just beat myself for you, bit. <laughs> you know, sometimes I make the and sometimes I clean it up. <laughs> that's a great metaphor uh, uh, what do you what do you call this and how do you describe it I tell people that I am an artist they say oh what do you paint and then and I say well I don't and then they say what art medium do you teach and I'm like well I don't do that either actually I don't teach Parker Palmer says you can't teach anybody anything Um, You can't teach math, you can't teach science, you can't teach art. 
all you can teach is who you are. And so I've spent most of my life being a listener and listening for stories and then helping people tell stories. I think it's just how how we have to live. And if if I'm going to consider myself successful, I want to know that you can answer the question, how do you see yourself? How do you see others? And how do you see others seeing you? And in order to answer those questions, you have to be a listener and a storyteller. And you have to allow others to do the same thing. It slows us down. It puts us in presence with each other. It forces us to collaborate with each other because that's how we know we're human is because we can tell stories, we name things, and um, we can say, this is how I see myself. And a couple times in the last couple years, I've had students say to me, I know that you're listening to me because your face is turned toward me, your eyes are crinkled up, you're leaning toward me, and you just want people to listen. And that's what the medium of community arts, you know, arts-based community development, whatever you want to call it, it, it allows people to come together and listen to so just to probe a little bit more, you have a significant part of your practice is that those same people who are listening and being listened to are also turning around and crafting individual or collective stories that live in the world and often are more than just I, me, or you, but we. There's people that make lots of money who do who do the listening part, right? They they call them shrinks, but there's something that comes out of this that transcends the individual consistently in your work to the larger community. Could you say something about that? Well, I'm thinking about a mural that this group that I work with finished last year. And somebody said to me, are you a muralist? I would say no. But on the other hand, I've done five or six murals over the last several years. But This particular project was about people asking questions. And we curated a whole series of questions that became a reprise of a mural called the Bureau of Inquiry. And they started out by saying, so why are we doing this? Who cares if we have questions? And I said, when we get that up there, we won't know who's reading your questions, and you probably will never hear the answers, but the questions are the important thing. And um, so this series of questions is provocative, and it is, it's always listening. It's an opportunity for ongoing engagement, but it's also these guys who are or have been homeless, there's mental health issues, drug issues, HIV positive, you know, undereducated, under-resourced, et cetera. And when they see something that they've done or they perform something that they've written, and they know that there's an audience, the transformation that takes place in that way of saying, I am here. I had a guy once who put his hand on a, on a cloth mural that we were doing, and he wrote on his hand, this is how, I, this is how you know I was here. And it was really important for him to say that because no one had ever accepted him for who he was. Do you remember any of the questions that ended up on that mural? Yeah, that same guy who put his hand on there and said, I am here. He proposed the very last question that we added to the list. This guy said to me, well, you know, that Lionel Richie song, is it me you're looking for? 
and it's like right in the center of the mural. And he was just astounded that he could contribute something like that. And it's something that everybody always comments on, like, wow, that could be just about anybody, anywhere, anytime. Mm. Yeah. Wow. The man with the hand on the wall. The indelible hand. So, Roseanne, how do you translate your practice in the field? Yeah. So... I'm when we talk about this, I'm glad that we talk about it as a field. Because for me, when I think of a field, I think of this wide open, open space with lots of people in it. (laughs) Right? When Kat started, one of the things we asked people to do is bring an object, right? And tell a story about that object and what it means to them. Introduce themselves to the group. And I usually bring a packet of seeds and give everybody some seed because I think that that's what we're doing. We're planting those seeds in our field, right? Because we're growing things. And that notion of working with people, collaborating, conceiving things together, um, imagining things together, and co-creating things together, uh, you know, that would be my elevator speech. We're together and we work together in a creative, imaginative way. So at the end of the day, if there's three or 400 people who have self-identified as being a practitioner in this field, variously called arts-based community development, creative placemaking, all these other terms, what is it that they do in the world that this training has prepared them for or given them uh, support to undertake? Sometime around... 2013, before my cat class, which was in 2014, there was Tiger, which is kind of a graduate level cat. They are mythical beings because their class only happened once. So if you are a tiger status, you are some kind of magician, I think. But one of them, her name is Regina Martinez. She's done very beautiful work throughout the world, working with young people. We were having a conversation at a place we were both working at on Cherokee Street, and she was talking about the idea of what it means to help. And we were having this really involved conversation and it was so layered. And I had never thought about this simple word or concept, help. Help is a good thing. Help is what we're supposed to do. Help is how you prove that you're a good person and a good human being. And she's, you know, bringing up these concepts and these ideas like, have you been asked for your help? You know, have you been invited to do this particular thing? How do you know the people that you want to offer your help to even need your help? How do you know that your help isn't harmful? And it was like mind exploding, right? And she said, you know, I think you'd be really good for this program and blah, 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 I'm going to nominate you. And I'm like, whatever you know and then i started hearing about how mythical this program was and how hard it was to get into and people have applied multiple times over years and they keep trying because it's you know all these all these things and this network and you meet these people and you can apply for grants and all of that but i kept thinking about they talk about concepts like help you know so the simple things that we feel like are no-brainers the things that are so deeply layered that we haven't really even taken time to contemplate, but are at the root of the work. The training was super valuable to me before I started to do the level of work that I'm doing now. 
mine was like, you know, right at the beginning. So it was great. It was great for me. One of the things that your answer rises up for me is that what human creativity, artists, the creative process, the imagination, all bring to the table is an almost unfathomable indigenous power that in various ways our society has ignored, trivialized, and in some cases has stifled. And very simply, what a program like CAT does is treat the people who uh, uh, know it, experience it, practice it with respect and with seriousness, but then turn that thing upside down and say, okay, if it's powerful, then there is moral, ethical dimensions to the work. There's good practice, bad practice, and there's a lifelong learning journey ahead. Talk about what you think artists and their community-based partners in other fields like housing, education, public safety, and communication come together to learn about this practice. What is it that's different for them having been engaged in this four or five month process of being, you know, in community with like-minded but very diverse cohort of souls? What's, what's happened for them? You know, I think about that all the time because, of course, that's the most important thing. What's the change? You know, you can't go to the CAT Institute and not come out changed. But my experience is that often people will come out at the end of that five months and feel confused. And my answer to them always is that confusion is fine. That confusion is actually great. And for them to sit in that confusion for a moment and figure out what they're confused about. I will also say my experience is time and time again, people will come up to me who've gone through the Institute and say, you know, that thing that we talked about that day and we read this thing that related to it. Uh, I didn't think it was important until yesterday when this other thing happened to me or I was in this situation. So it's something that percolates and grows and blossoms. Actually, the Bureau of Inquiry and Impatient's story about talking with Gina, cats a series of questions. You know, we're just, we're asking a series of questions and the answers are in the cohort. They're not coming from me or from you. They're coming through the cohort. And that series of questions is what's important. So, Roseanne, you mentioned confusion. Could you dis- describe what kind of confusion? Yeah, I always tell the story about one of our artists who, you know, at the end of five months during our graduation, came up to me and said, Roseanne, still not sure why I did this. And I said, you know what? There's going to be a day when you come up to me and you tell me why you did it. We don't offer the answers. He said, oh, okay. So Mike Brown happens, right? Mike Brown is killed and our city is disrupted. And this artist, you know, was part of some of the disruption. And I go to lunch one day and I see him and several other Catalans at a table and I go up to them and say hello. And just only half joking, I say, okay, what are you guys plotting? And they, and they say, well, we're gonna do this action, you know, using art and in in the protests and we talk about it. 
And this artist looks up at me and he said, Roseanne, I said, yeah, that day, that day at the end of Cat that I told you, I didn't know why I did it. I said, yeah. And he said, and then you told me I was going to tell you why I did it. I said, uh-huh. Is this the day? He said, oh, yeah. He said, when I got to the front lines of those protests and I looked around at who I knew and who I could collaborate with and who, who thought like I did, the other people were catalogs. And he said, that's it, the network, the people, the training, the shorthand, the language, the values. I said, uh-huh, that's it. Roseanne's story about young artists in the streets of Ferguson is the first of many more we'll be hearing about art and upheaval and change in part two of the Diva Cats. So please, tune in to episode 14 of Change the Story, Change the World. Story, story, story. Thank you for tuning in, for being here. Please join us for our next episode. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and directed by Bill Cleveland. Our theme and soundscape are by Judy Munson. And please, if you've been provoked or inspired, join the continuing conversation and check out our show notes at the Center's website at www.artandcommunity.com. And please note that subscribing to Change the Story, Change the World is a great, no-cost way of supporting our work.